Joan Esposito. Live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. Hello, thank you for joining me this Thursday, January 12th. Isn't it a great day to be alive? Isn't every day a great day to be alive? I hope so. Okay, okay, that was our little tiny itty-bitty moment of zen. Now we're going to jump right into it. Uh, just a few minutes ago, Attorney General Merrick Garland, the head of the Department of Justice, announced that there was going to be or is going to be uh, a special counsel to investigate classified documents found in President Biden's possession There have now been three different locations. Um, There were some lawyers who were cleaning out a vice presidential office. Uh, They found a couple of documents that appeared to be stamped classified. So President Biden was like, send them wherever they're supposed to go and keep looking. You know, that's how you react when a situation like that occurs, not denying that there are our documents, not keeping them, you know, strewn about your desk and floor. Anyway, I digress. Uh, he said, keep looking. And now in uh, two other locations, uh, one location, uh, they found one document. Again, these are like offices he's used or um, places where there are other vice presidential. These were when he was vice president, vice presidential documents. So there now have been three locations where it appears that one or two or a handful of documents have been found. On the basis of that, Merrick Garland decided to take the Department of Justice out of the equation by appointing a special counsel to look into this and discover whether or not there was any problem. So, like I said, a few minutes ago, Merrick Garland came out and talked about this. He uh, gave us a timeline of the discovery of these documents and when uh, government officials were notified about the classified documents. And again, this was not something, you know, President Biden just opened up a drawer and found them. These were lawyers who were cleaning out or organizing these offices And uh, they immediately let President Biden know. President Biden immediately said anything that needs to go to the National Archives, get it over there right now. Anyway, Merrick Garland ran us through how it is possible that these documents were mishandled. Listen to this. On the evening of November 4th, 2022, the National Archives Office of Inspector General contacted a prosecutor at the Department of Justice. It informed him that the White House had notified the archives that documents bearing classification markings were identified at the office of the Penn Biden Center for Diplomacy and Global Engagement, located in Washington, D.C. That office was not authorized for storage of classified documents. The prosecutor was also advised that those documents had been secured in an archives facility. On November 9th, the FBI commenced an assessment consistent with standard protocols to understand whether classified information had been mishandled in violation of federal law. On November 14th, pursuant to Section 600.2B of the Special Counsel Regulations, I assigned U.S. Attorney Lausch to conduct an initial investigation 
to inform my decision whether to appoint a special counsel. Mr. Lausch has served as the U.S. Attorney in Chicago since 2017. Before that, he spent more than a decade as an assistant U.S. Attorney in that same office. I selected him to conduct the initial investigation because I was confident his experience would ensure that it would be done professionally and expeditiously. On December 20th, President Biden's personal counsel informed Mr. Lausch that additional documents bearing classification markings were identified in the garage of the president's private residence in Wilmington, Delaware. President Biden's counsel informed Mr. Lausch that those documents were among other records from the period of the president's service as vice president. The FBI went to the location and secured those documents. On January 5, 2023, Mr. Lausch briefed me on the results of his initial investigation and advised me that further investigation by a special counsel was warranted. Based on Mr. Lausch's initial investigation, I concluded that, under the special counsel regulations, it was in the public interest to appoint a special counsel. In the days since, while Mr. Lausch continued the investigation, the department identified Mr. Herr for appointment as special counsel. This morning, President Biden's personal counsel called Mr. Lausch and stated that an additional document bearing classification markings was identified at the president's personal residence in Wilmington, Delaware. Okay, you got that? So, by the way, John Lausch, who is uh, was a U.S. attorney from uh, our area, was appointed by President Trump. He was appointed in 2017. And when President Biden took over, you know, usually uh, whoever is the U.S. attorney is um, selected by the president, especially when there is such a difference in administrations. Oftentimes the previous people are asked to turn in their resignations so that the current president can appoint their own people. John Lausch was so well thought of that a lot of Democrats told a President Biden to not to ask for his resignation or at least not to ask for his resignation right away. So John Lausch considered by both sides of the aisle, for the most part, to be a pretty straight shooter. <clears throat> what I think is interesting, <clears throat> and I don't know how long, you know, do they have a list of these people? Like if we need a special counsel, here's 10 people we can call on to do that. Is that it would seem It would seem smart that when you had a department like the DOJ that you make a list like that. But I don't know if they do, because I thought the timeline here was kind of interesting in that John Lausch told Merrick Garland on the 5th uh, that there needed to be a special counsel appointed in this matter. And Merrick Garland is just talking about this now, the 12th, fully a week later. Now, maybe it it takes that long to consult the list, make a few calls, talk to some people, straighten it all out. I don't know. It kind of seems like if this were really important, it could have been done in a couple of days. Why aren't we? Why didn't we get this all on Monday? Lawyers, I think they want to be careful more than they want to be speedy. That's the only explanation I can come up with. So Robert Herr, former federal prosecutor, senior Justice Department official, is going to be the special counsel. 
looking into this. He worked in the U.S. Attorney's Office in Maryland. <clears throat> he was an assistant U.S. attorney, also led the office for three years. We shall see. I think um, I think that what brought about the request for a special counsel was particularly since this is one of the things that Donald Trump is being scrutinized so closely for. I think they wanted to make sure that it didn't look political, like it didn't look like, well, we're going to go after Trump for this, but when Biden does it, we're going to sweep it under the rug. No, I think they want people to have confidence that this is being handled fairly. And if they're going to look into Donald Trump for this, then in the interest of fairness, they need to look into President Biden for this, particularly after the second document was found at a different location. And that was even before the third document was found. However, these are not equivalent. This is not a man who lied to investigators. Remember Trump had his lawyers like in June, and Trump had his lawyers give a document to the FBI that said, that's it, you got everything. And the woman whose name was on that document admitted to the FBI that she didn't know for sure. She hadn't, this hadn't been one of her jobs. She, and as a, so she called her, her senior lawyer and she was like, I'm not signing this unless we add a line that says like, to the best of my knowledge, because she said, I I didn't participate in this. I don't know. And you want me to sign this document and give it to the FBI? So they threw in a line that she apparently felt would protect her in the future. Like, you know, I am I am telling you what I believe to be true to the best of my knowledge. Well, it turned out somebody was lying. Somebody was lying. Somebody knew that there were still classified documents and somebody ratted them out to the FBI. So the FBI, having been told officially there were no more classified documents, being told unofficially by somebody in the know that there were still more classified documents, ended up showing up with a subpoena. That is not this. And here's my prediction, dollars to donuts. If they haven't done it already, President Obama has gotten some lawyers to go through every archive that isn't in the National Archives already, but any material that maybe was on its way to the Presidential Center, might be at the Presidential Center, might be in storage, intended for the Presidential Center. President Obama, I'm dollars to donuts right now. And if he's smart, President Bush is doing the same thing to make sure that down the road this doesn't land in their lap as well. So Merrick Garland uh, told us that Robert Hur was going to be the special counsel. He told us a little bit about Mr. Hur. When he made the appointment, listen to this. Earlier today, 
I, si- I signed an order appointing Robert Hur a special counsel for the matter I've just described. The document authorizes him to investigate whether any person or entity violated the law in connection with this matter. The special counsel will not be subject to the day-to-day supervision of any official of the department, but he must comply with the regulations, procedures, and policies of the department. Mr. Herr has a long and distinguished career as a prosecutor. In 2003, he joined the department's criminal division, where he worked on counterterrorism, corporate fraud, and appellate matters. From 2007 until 2014, Mr. Herr served as an assistant U.S. attorney for the District of Maryland, where he prosecuted matters ranging from violent crime to financial fraud. In 2017, Mr. Herr rejoined the department as the principal associate deputy attorney general. In 2018, he was nominated and confirmed to serve as a U.S. attorney for the District of Maryland. As U.S. attorney, he supervised some of the department's more important national security, public corruption, and other high-profile matters. I will ensure that Mr. Herr receives all the resources he needs to conduct his work. And there you have it. And we will find out when they have something to tell us. They are under, I'm sure they're under a lot of pressure to get this kind of thing done as quickly as can as they can. But it's not like there's a deadline. You know, um, better to get it right than get it done quickly. So no timetable that I'm aware of here. And we'll just wait and see what happens. But Again, I would like to point out the difference in the way President Biden has reacted to this than the way President Trump has reacted to this. The lying, signing false statements to the FBI, and the classified documents that were in at least the first location found by President Biden, they were in a locked area, a locked closet. By all accounts, the documents at Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago were just laying around. Souvenirs, if you will, of his time as president. I mean, people say, oh, you know, he wanted to trade some stuff with the Saudis and wouldn't put it past him. Wouldn't put it past him. But a lot of people also suspect that it was just ego. I was president. This is my stuff, and I'm taking it. <laughs> With Donald Trump, you, you never know. When it isn't clear what is most beneficial to him, you can't know for sure the reason. If we knew for sure that this a couple of billion dollars that the Saudis invested in in Jared Kushner's hedge fund... If we knew for sure that was a payment, then, then you know, we'd know. He was uh, smart enough to keep some stuff to sell. Otherwise, it's entirely possible it was just ego. So we'll see how it plays out, and we'll keep you updated. We've got a lot more to talk about. Let's take a quick break and get started with it right after this. Stay on top of the latest news in and around Chicago with Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, every weekday afternoon from 2 to 5 p.m. on WCPT 820. 
the family meeting. There's a practical use to social media. And I know it's it's hard to watch some of the garbage that comes across, the, the silly videos, and you, you don't want everybody to tell you every little thing they're doing. And I don't care about your little, you eat the pizza. I don't I care about that. It's no, But it's no different than opening up a newspaper or a magazine and going, well, that article I'm not interested in. That article right. I'm not interested in. I'm, gonna be, I'm interested in the one. Or, or, or oh. thumbs down it or whatever you do to it so it doesn't it's show up the anymore. same thing. But it's also an opportunity for you to spread the word, right? Tune into the family meeting Sundays at 4. This is WCPT 820, where facts matter. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. We definitely have some good news today on the economy. Inflation is slowing. Uh, The numbers for December show that. And now the Federal Reserve can, again, pat themselves on the back. And maybe, maybe the next rate hike will take a little longer, be a little smaller. Let's hope so. The Consumer Price Index went up 6.5%, but in November, it was at 7.1%. So it's declining a little bit as well. Inflation slowed. It was, uh, according to, what was this, the Washington Post, the annual inflation rate was the slowest since October 2021. Gas prices are down. Airfare prices are down. President Biden <laughs> took a victory lap about this uh, today. And uh, who can blame him, right? Um, he particularly wanted uh, to talk about some of the falling prices and also um, the falling inflation rate. Basically, he wanted to tell us about all this economic good news. Listen to this. Today we've got some good news. Good news about the economy. For the sixth month in a row, inflation has come down. Measured over the last 12 months, it has fallen 6.5 to 6.5%. That's down from 7.1% the month before. It's down from 9.1% this summer. Inflation is now at its lowest level since October of 2021. When we look at the at the just the last three months, we see that inflation fell to 1.8 percent on an annualized basis. It's down from more than 11 percent in the first three months of last year. So the data is clear. Even though inflation is high in major economies around the world, it's coming down in America month after month, giving families some real breathing room. Yay! I don't play sound effects, but if I did, you know, this would be a good place for that. Uh, President Biden also talked not only about the inflation rate coming down. Are you listening, Jerome Powell? Take it easy on us the next time the Fed takes a look at interest rates. Uh, President Biden also talked about how prices are falling. Yes, prices are falling. Gas prices are less. Uh, airline prices are less, but that's not the whole of it. He sees falling prices everywhere he looks. <laughs> Listen to this. My administration took action to get oil onto the market and bring down prices. Now gas is down more than a dollar seventy from its peak. And that adds up to a family with a typical family with two vehicles to a savings of one hundred and eighty dollars a month every single month that stays in their pockets instead of being spent at the pump. 
Food inflation is slowing as well. Last month, we saw the smallest increase in food prices in almost two years. And much of that increase was due to the avian flu outbreak, which has driven up the egg prices around in the United States. It's not just gas and food prices, though. When we look at what economists call core inflation, which takes out energy and food, we see welcome news as well. Core inflation is down to the lowest level in a year. Over the past three months, core inflation has come down to 3% on an annualized basis. That's down from more than 6% at the beginning of 2022. And isn't that good news? I'm going to try to squeeze in. Before we have to go to a break, I want to squeeze in one more bit of sound on the economy. Um, President Biden said starting last week, we are starting to see some of the real benefits of the Inflation Reduction Act that he signed last year. Listen to this. Starting last week, as of January 1, a month's supply of insulin is now capped at $35 for seniors on Medicare. Some are paying hundreds of dollars every month for their insulin. But not anymore. Starting last week, if big pharma raises prices faster than inflation, they're going to face big penalties. Starting last week, Americans can get tax credits when they install energy efficient appliances in their homes, like heat pumps or solar panels, or when they buy electric vehicles. These were all pieces of what that big law that we passed last year. Now they're kicking in. And Americans are starting to feel the benefits in their everyday lives. So to summarize yet again, inflation is continuing to slow. Prices are coming down. This is exactly what the Fed wants to see. And while they have intimated that they uh, will still maybe increase rates once, maybe twice more, the increases are expected to be much lower and maybe if we're lucky much farther between good news economically yay for us uh, there's a lot going on today we have a lot of interesting people to talk to let's get to it right after this your lawn drive home just got even easier driving it home with patty vasquez now weeknights from 5 to 7 p.m on wcpt 820 Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. This is a part of our program here on WCPT that we call Union Strong. We work with a lot of Chicago's trade unions uh, to promote what they're doing. It's about time the world understood all the good that we get from unions and union workers. So we do a sponsored segment we call Union Strong. We talk to various union members. Today we're talking to Matt Gugala, financial secretary, treasurer, and business representative of Smart Local 265. Hello, Matt. How are you? I'm doing great, Joan. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you, too. What are you looking forward to personally and professionally in 2023? Oh, personally, I want to I want to try and get that COVID stuff behind us. Maybe we don't give that yeah. a, give that a, an attempt. And then, uh, you know, professionally, I like to, you know, the unions. It seems like it's not uh, such a bad word anymore, and people are starting to realize that uh, that the unions are kind of the way to go, or they they help workers, protect workers, and uh, and so the, the it seems like uh, they're on a, a little bit of an upswing. So I'm looking forward to seeing what what's going to happen in the in this year. 
You know, I was talking to a guest some months ago about some union issue. They weren't a union person, but we were talking about some issue that had to do with unions. And the guest was like, you know, unions are so great and they just don't do a good job getting their message out. And I was like, well, you know, here at WCPT, we talk to union people quite regularly about the good that they do for their workers. I mean, to be able to have one job and still afford to have a family and still have a pension to be able to retire comfortably at some point. You know, those used to not be unusual things. You know, those used to be what the middle class that they expected from their jobs. You know, my dad, you know, he worked for Sears. He never made a ton of money, but you know, he made enough for us to have a little house and for me to go to Catholic school. And, you know, it, he didn't have to take a second job. My mom didn't have to, um, you know, she was a nurse and she eventually went back to teaching, but she didn't have to do that. And we used to think that that was the way it should be. And we, we've seemingly, we've gotten so far from that. You know, we've got the person who works a day job and then, you know, drives for a ride share company at night. I mean, we've gotten too used to that kind of mentality. Don't you think, Matt? I totally agree. And, and we, we actually hear that from our own members sometimes, you know, where it's, we need to get the, get the word out and, and where, and, and you kind of scratch your head and you say, you know what, that it, it's, it's kind of tough when you, when you want to get the word out to, um, retiring with dignity, getting paid a decent way. You wouldn't think you need to get that word out. It should kind of be, <laughs> kind of be a, a, you know, something we're all striving for in the first place. Um, but, but yeah, I think that, uh, you know, and I, you know, sometimes the unions in the past have made it so they've, they've, um, they've almost given themselves a bad name, you know, but, but the, the way things are now, they were so progressive and there's, there's so much talent within the unions and there's, it's, it's definitely um, come a long way and and we've progressed in in such a way that that uh, um, yeah I guess I guess maybe people don't see it as much uh, and we had urge our members and any union member to to live by example and show and get in the community and that's why a lot of the unions are out in the communities and doing charitable stuff and there we we got the smart army where we do all kinds of all kinds of things like we've talked about before where we're doing cancer run cancer walks we're working at uh, Ronald McDonald House or where we're you know serving meals to to the to the homeless you know we we try to get out and live by example in the communities um, and and yeah when you don't have a giant advertising budget it's pretty tough by word of mouth but we urge every union member to get out there and, and uh, be a service to their community and, and talk about it, too. It's not so taboo like it was. You know, it's a, let's talk about being union and being treated with dignity and uh, and having a decent workplace and, and uh, not being a disposable worker. Yeah. And I was uh, that's one of the things that I learned and was pleasantly surprised about when I first started talking to all you guys was, you know, it isn't just. You know, we're fighting for better conditions and safety and and good wages. We you guys do a lot of pro bono stuff. You do a lot of charity stuff. And I had never maybe the people directly involved with whatever projects heard about it. But I had never heard about some of those activities. I know that there are other things we want to get to in this conversation. But first, tell the audience um, like Smart Local 265, in the, over the last few years, what are some of the projects you guys have been involved in just for the good of the community? 
Uh, we've, we've, we've worked with uh, DuPage Pads, where we have some of our members go, and they'll stay overnight and set up beds and, and bring a meal for uh, for the homeless that are in, in DuPage, homeless people and, and sometimes homeless families, mothers and their children. Um, we've worked in the in the hospitals doing some 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 work where they needed something, but they can't they can't necessarily afford uh, to get something done there, you know, construction wise. So we, we help out with that. We've done, uh, where we set up a, a, a camp for, um, disabled children this last summer. Um, we had about 50 or 60 union members out there where we set up their, set up the tents and, uh, and, and, uh, rebuilt all their picnic tables. And we do all, all kinds of things, um, that, that are even, even a little bit out of the ordinary. We've done the, the plane pull, which is a fun one at O'Hare Airport, where you get the, you, you, you're kind of racing against the clock to pull a giant plane with a team of people that donates money to Special Olympics. Um, we we do all kinds of all kinds of events like that, and and really it is kind of unsung. Um, I guess it it almost it almost makes it not as cool if you're if you if you're doing it just to advertise and let everybody know how cool you are, right? <laughs> uh, but uh, but yeah, so we kind of we. We don't do an excellent job of it, um, but we do a lot of it, and we have a good time doing it um, because the being in the union sort of affords us some of that time to say, you know what, there are people that are less fortunate. There are causes that are less fortunate than, our, than ours. There are things that are important within our community that we want to get done. And, and yeah, we are, we're, we're out there doing just, just stuff upon stuff. We did a uh, breast cancer uh, walk. We sponsored that this, uh, this last fall. Um, so we're, we're always on the lookout and we're always doing things in the community, um, that aren't, aren't necessarily, we're not really putting it on the billboard, but we're out there, we're out there crushing it, especially the members of 265 are, are extremely generous and, and good people. Yeah, because I think sometimes people think, oh, you know, you know, in all of the uh, all of the strikes and all of the legal battles, oh, you know, the union people, they don't care about anything but themselves. And it couldn't be farther from the truth. You guys do an incredible job in the community. And that's something that I think I think I'm going to make you talk about that every time you come on with me in the future. Matt. Uh, that, that would be great. I mean, oh, that, that, that'd be a good thing. It's kind of uplifting a little bit. You know, we, yeah. we, uh, we definitely, definitely get out there and we and we love to do it. And really, when you when you boil it down, the unions, it's it's the opposite of being um, that greedy, greedy person that's looking for something for yourself. You're actually looking for something. It's always about someone else. It's about the rest of the workers. It's about your family. It's about, you know, it's never typically about the, about the union worker. It's about bringing that, raising that bar for everyone, um, with you and and coming up behind you too. Um, now let's switch gears to something a little bit more serious. There has been a court case working its way through the courts in Washington, and it has to do with job actions, strikes, and possibly being sued after the fact. Can you explain this case? I believe it's Glacier Northwest versus Teamsters via Cornell Law School. That's correct. Looks like you've been doing your homework. So yeah, so the, that that is true. Um, the Supreme Court is is added again. Uh, we have Glacier Northwest, and and so uh, just just briefly, what had happened is there's a uh, in 2017 there was a strike um, of the of the Teamsters that were being unfairly treated, and uh, and some of the product that they did, it was a cement company. Some of the product that they had got got spoiled, um, and in the past, what what 
we've been protected um, from someone going after us, our right to strike, because they'll call it damages. And they're trying to seek damages for that. And uh, Mm -hmm. and they in the past, you're not able to get it since 1959. You haven't been able to get that because there was a there was a decision back in 1959 that protects workers rights to strike. Um, So it's it's very it's it's not ironic that uh, that our our Supreme Court is now. Um, you know, we've, we've seen other laws that they have gone way back to, uh, to change. Uh, and they're, they're after this one too, a 1959 law that protects our right to strike without any, um, you know, legal ramifications as far as damages to, to a union or to the workers. Um, and so what this is seeking to do is to limit their or stop their right to strike by being able to sue them if you do. So, yeah. um, it, uh-huh. it, 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 it's wild. It's a strike, you know, and, but in their minds, we should be able to sue for striking. In oh, yes. There was that cement truck and it just sat there. And, you know, by the time the strike was over, all the cement was bad. So I'm going to sue you, the workers and your union for, you know, and also the gas, you know, that truck was turned on the whole time. So it was using a lot of gas. I'm going to sue you for that, too. It is. It's a way yeah. of retaliating. That's right. And we lost profits during that time, too. So we're going to. Oh, yeah. Let's and not then, forget about uh, that. Yeah. Right. And now let's let's not forget if we get rid of all those workers that we're striking, then now to rehire workers is going to cost us money. So we can sue for that, too. So so there's there's all kinds of now at face value. It sounds like, uh, you know, you almost feel yeah they well, the concrete did get spoiled. And, and you think that right. And initial, mm-hmm. uh, but when you start to dig into and that's how that's that's how it, the, the trickery comes in, you know, and, and uh, so you start to think about it. But then when you start to broaden that definition of of a loss. They say, wait a minute, what, what was lost? Well, we lost our reputation. How much is that worth? How much? Yeah. You know? And so, so that's the, that's the fear of this. And that's why it's, it's, it's quite scary that the, uh, that the Supreme court is taking on cases that are decades and decades old against, um, working, working people. I mean, this, this court is, uh, um, there was a, there was a study done, uh, and by the William and Mary uh, law review, um, and they're they're looking at this that this court is is the most anti union court since the courts at the turn of the century, um, so the turn of the twentieth century, which is which is quite remarkable when you think about it. That uh, that it seemed like we come so far, but we're we're way back at the same time. Yeah, well, uh, Matt, I hate to point this out to you, but uh, there was precedent for Roe v. Wade. Uh, to be the law of the land. And we even had justices asked about that who said that they weren't going to mess with precedent. And, uh, Matt, they did, they did that. They took something That's that right. was accepted, that was established, and it didn't fit with their ideology. So they kicked it to the curb. So I don't know, um, if you've gotten any sense so far. You know, sometimes when lawyers go before the Supreme Court and the justices question the lawyers, court watchers really read those tea leaves very carefully. And, you know, what was the tone of the questioning? And did they seem to be, you know, sort of aggressive in their questioning and challenging and looks like they don't like this idea? Have you gotten any sense so far in uh, the way the court might react and rule on this? Well, the, the the feeling out there right now is that it's 
because they're going, they're looking at the 1950s, since they're digging so far back and they're looking at this to, to revisit something that's already on the books. They're, they've they've already taken the steps to show us, just like Roe v. Wade, that they're serious about revisiting things that they, they may may want to uh, to uh, rewrite, you know, rewrite the history. And uh, this doesn't seem any different. It seems very similar to the to to the Roe v. Wade because this uh, 1959. So it's been since 1960, roughly, uh, has been the law of the land has been accepted that working people can stand up and say we're not going to accept that. And then then they say it again and again and again. And finally, they say then we are going to go on strike. And uh, so obviously, if you're moving product or making product or doing something like that, there were steps that came before your concrete got spoiled. Right. There were steps that came before as you're 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 leading up to saying, hey, we don't believe this is fair. Having this negotiations, having discussions, um, you know, I, I oftentimes get get asked, hey, why why do you guys put that rat up? The rat is it's very offensive, you know. And I say, well, um, it's usually because the Christmas card didn't work. So <laughs> it's typically because we have the conversation and we have the conversation and we have the conversation, and then we then we want everybody to hear. We want everybody to know, and that's 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 what striking is all about. That's that's what it has been in America since before, way before. 1959, but it was memorialized in that law that says we we protect this this right. And I personally have to tell you, Matt, I like the rat. Um, one of the things, <laughs> you know, you're driving along, you go by a business, and you see the big rat, and you don't have to slow down and try to read the signs to find out exactly what's going on, because you know exactly what's going on. You know that there are union <laughs> right. workers who are really upset because of something that shouldn't be happening that is or something that is happening that shouldn't be happening and it's it's a it's a very very visual very clear way to get a big message very quickly so i say let's keep the rat that's right you know i tell you what when i started this job um a little a few years ago here uh we we didn't I, I came on and I said, Okay, I'm ready, I'm all fired up. I was an organizer ready to get out there and start organizing and talking about the union and putting up the rat. Okay, where's the rat? They said, <laughs> We don't have any rats. And I said I was just about to quit. <laughs> but but we made it through and uh we ended up getting a couple a few years later. So so yeah, but right when I started they didn't they actually didn't have any and uh and now we're now we're on our way. But you're right, it's because of that message. It's able to say we have the right to do this, and we want people to see. We want people to see what's going on because if you if you just whisper it, that's that's what they want, and, exactly. and you know, they will they will rally against that and try to uh, try to knock it down. And they they fought against the rat before and said it's it's coercive or it's intimidating, and it's and it's it's absolutely not. It's sending a it's it's like the bad signal. It's putting up the big message that everybody can see and say, okay, I understand what this is. And the more we talk about that, the more people understand what that is. It's it's us telling you that there's a problem. Something's going wrong here. And right now, the Supreme Court is trying to take that away. Yep. Um, you're exactly you're exactly right about that. And when those are kind of labor disputes, I think most times companies know, you know, we don't want the word to get out because our customers, our clients they're going to side with the workers. We know that going in. So that's why we want to keep things behind closed doors. 
Anyway, um, we need to take a break. I am joined by Matt Gugala, financial secretary, treasurer, and business rep of Smart Local 265. This is our regular Union Strong segment. We're going to be back with more right after this. Need a new social media account to follow for progressive politics? WCPT 820 is your best source for both progressive politics and programming. Give us a like on Facebook and a follow on both Twitter and Instagram. You're listening to WCPT 820, because facts matter. Attention, everyone. Don't turn that dial. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, returns right now on WCPT 820. This is our regular Union Strong segment. I am happy to be joined by Matt Gugala, who is with Local Union Smart 265. Hey, um, Matt, there are, uh, correct me if I am wrong, but are, don't we now have a couple of legislators who are from, uh, union, from the unions? Absolutely. So yeah, we're, 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 we're proud that, uh, this, they were just, we had a couple that were sworn in yesterday. Um, there's, there are some pro labor people within the, within the house right now. And, uh, and we've, we've just got two more. We have, uh, Harry Benton from the 47th district, kind of near the, the Will County Plainfield area. And then we have, uh, Matt Hansen, who's in the Kane County area, um, with, with, in the 83rd, uh, district. And they, they were from, uh, typically stronger Republican, uh, Republican run, uh, districts, um, that have turned into, uh, into, um, Democrat side. And uh, we we're happy about that because we know that they're kind of they're like minded. So uh, Harry Benton, he's an iron worker, regular salt of the earth guy. Uh, and you have uh, Matt Hansen, who was a he's on he's in the same union as I am. He's actually on the, in, in smart. Uh, he's on the transportation side. So he's a railroad conductor, um, which is the first time a railroad conductor in in that in that area has been uh, has been elected, which is which is super cool. Um, and they're. They're like-minded people. They're positive people. They're progressive people, and uh, it's it's such a good move for the state. Uh, and we're we couldn't be happier. Uh, I went down for the inauguration yesterday, and that was that was quite quite something to be seen. It was very cool. Now they don't they don't have to leave the union to do the work of being a representative, do they? No, but it will. Uh, you know, it definitely takes its toll. So they have some, uh, like every representative, they're going to have to figure out some some of that balance. Uh, mm-hmm. I think uh, it does lend itself a little bit to because with the trades, another another thing about working with dignity is you're not you're not chained to the job. You're not going to uh, uh, it's it's either do this job or you have nothing. Um, so on the on the trade side, um, there's there's a little bit of flexibility there, you know, um, because as tradespeople, you don't work, you don't get paid in the trades, you know. But when you're back to work, you're back to getting paid. Um, so. So that it kind of lends itself to that. I know it's difficult for them, and I know it's still difficult for their families. But uh, but they're doing such a good a good thing that uh, they're they're kind of weighing the cost and and just they're just going for it. And I think it's it's fantastic. Well, you know, we already have the workers' rights amendment passed and on the books. Um, is there any particular union positive legislation that you're aware of? Something I'm sure Harry and Matt would certainly champion. What are you looking at when you look at the 2023 session in Springfield? 
you know, personally, I'd, I'd like to see them do some reform on some of the, the TIF district stuff in Illinois. I don't know if that's it. I don't, I don't think it's a law. I don't think anybody's proposed it yet, but I, I'd like to see something, something looking at that because I think the way that uh, businesses are trying to get around um, paying prevailing wages uh, is, is a little bit, uh, is a little bit uh, off. Um, so hopefully we'd see something with, with regards to, to something like that. Um, and then just strengthening the bargaining power and of workers within the state or strengthening the ability to organize is, is definitely high on our list of, of everything important. You know, it occurs to me now that we're talking about the legislature, if indeed the Supreme Court rules against unions in this um, um, case that is before them about being able to sue for things that went wrong during a strike, would there be laws that we could pass in the state of Illinois to make sure that doesn't happen here? And I'm thinking of the instance with Roe v. Wade. You know, the Supreme Court turned their back on those rights. And here in the state of Illinois, the legislature moved to make sure that those rights existed at the very least in Illinois. I'm wondering, Matt, if it would be possible to do something similar I think you have a great idea. Let's write it together and, and, <laughs> and give it to these guys and get them to vote because then we'll we'll, uh, we'll have our name in lights. But no, I think that's uh, uh, if hopefully this decision doesn't go go that way. But if it does, then then absolutely there's going to be having, we're going to have to really look at it and and get something uh, uh, get something that our legislators can get on board with that are going to protect the rights of working people in Illinois. For those of you who didn't hear the beginning of my conversation with Matt, there's a measure before the Supreme Court. Um, it is Glacier Northwest versus the International Brotherhood of Teamsters. And what they are, apparently what they have agreed to revisit is this idea that, you know, um, any expense that a company incurs during a strike that after the strike is over, they could sue the workers and sue the union for like, oh, our cement went bad. And oh, by the way, we lost some profits. And oh, by the way, we had to pay people who had nothing to do. And oh, by the way, this and oh, by the way, that. And so we're now going to sue you. And it is, you know, you why you might think, as Matt said before, oh, well, the cement went bad. Somebody ought to be on the hook for that. It is... It is one of those laws, as is often the case with laws that conservatives are trying to either get on the books or get rid of, where on the surface of it, it sounds logical. But when you dig a little deeper, you realize the intent and the intent is to have a financial weapon to go after workers and unions like, oh, they can't afford to strike because they know if they strike as soon as it's over, we're going to sue them for all of these expenses, which the courts have now told us we can do. So this is a case um, that we're going to have to really, really keep an eye on. Um, Matt, we only have um, a short amount of time left. Uh, any one message that you want to leave our listeners with today? Sure. I think I think within a new year, if you if you live next to a union member or you know a union member, um, union's not a taboo subject to talk about. It's not politics. It's people, right? So unionism is 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 
having some dignity with your working conditions. It's having some dignity in retirement and having some dignity in your community. So I urge anybody that's not a member of the union to talk with people that are in the union. I, I recently had a, a big discussion with people that uh, that were interested in organizing. And I won't say that the the uh, the entity that it was, but uh, but it was people you wouldn't think were going to try to organize. And, and we were having a conversation. We got on a Zoom meeting with them and I talked for maybe an hour and a half about being union and we dispelled some of the myths and, and uh, it was a, it was an excellent conversation and I, it, it made people think a lot differently about what they, what they thought the old union was and what they, what they think unions are in the first place. So it's, it's very cool. So I urge anybody that uh, knows a union member or knows anybody in the union, have a conversation with them, talk about the union, talk about working conditions talk about what it is to be in the union because there's a ton of misconceptions out there that people will find are yeah. are, are false and uh and yeah that would be fantastic. And being in a union it, it you know there are unions beyond trade unions I'm in a union I'm in SAG-AFTRA and have been for far longer than I'm willing to admit to I'm also a member of the of the local board so you know you, people you might be surprised I bet everybody knows a group of people who are affiliated and in unions so that's good advice matt thank you so much matt it's i love talking to you thank you for being here and we love supporting unions and we love the fact that the unions support wcpt thanks joan always a pleasure this is matt gugala financial secretary treasurer business rep of smart local 265 in our union strong segment we're going to take a break and we are going to talk about lessons learned about voters in the midterm elections right after this. There's no excuse to miss Joan Esposito. It's number one on my stereo. Live, local, and progressive. You can listen to her daily at WCPT820.com on your computer or phone. The Rick Smith Show, live, weeknights from 8 to 10 p.m. Look at what's happening. The Rick Smith Show on WCPT 820. Everyone is talking about it. Chicago's progressive talk. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. The reason that I listen to you from the infamous other side, you will call a spade a spade, and if it's indefensible, you will not defend it. And you know what? I can respect that. On WCPT 820. We have in the past spoken with Isaac Wright. He is a partner at the Rural Voter Institute. He's an expert on rural voters, what motivates them, what causes they care about. Isaac, Happy New Year. Thanks for being here. Happy New Year, Joan. It's our first time to talk in 2023. (laughs) And not the last, I assure you. (laughs) (laughs) Amen to that. Amen to that. One election behind us and a big one up ahead. It doesn't even seem like it's that far off, does it? No, it it's uh, six hundred some days. Yeah, six. Uh, I, coming faster than we know it. I know. You know, uh, for a while it was like the midterms. Oh, I, you know, the midterms—they're so far off. I just can't even focus. And all of a sudden, it's like, yikes! It's like a month yeah. from now. Amazing how that right. how that happens. Um. So the midterm elections. You're an expert on rural voters. What did we learn, Isaac? So I think we learned that we can make inroads in places where we try. We also saw that sometimes the uh, uh, feeling of disenfranchisement by Trump actually discourages certain Republicans, regardless of geography. 
which was a fascinating thing to see. The biggest lesson ahead is that if we want to make a difference for 2024, we need to start now, right? Um, in places where we saw, for example, the uh, Pennsylvania Senate race, right? Mm-hmm. We had a candidate who went out, who traveled beyond the typical corridor of voter dense populations and went out into rural counties. And what happened? He overperformed there and it made a difference. And Pennsylvania is a state that not only mattered in the midterms, but that's a state that's going to be critical for us in 2024. And so it tells us now, you know, a, a presidential candidate is different than a candidate for a statewide office because they have to divide their time so much. So it tells us now that we need to be building infrastructure on the ground. That Mm -hmm. means campaign organizing far, far out. We should be looking at 2023, what we can do to replicate, for example, what happened there. You know, we saw in Georgia, again, where uh, our statewide candidate for governor uh, underperformed rural voters compared to our statewide candidate for U.S. Senate, and those two elections turned out differently. And so we know that in places where our candidates spend the time and the resources, where our campaigns, our parties spend time and resources, we can reach more voters. And so to do that in something as large a scale as a presidential election cycle, we have to start even further out because we're going to be talking about national brands, not just statewide brands. And that's the work that needs to begin this year. That's why I said at the beginning of our conversation, it seems like the 2024 election is right around the corner. Yeah. Focusing um, on Pennsylvania, uh, John Fetterman's victory there over Dr. Oz. I know this is going to sound like kind of a silly question, Isaac, but Fetterman really was kind of a a blue-collar man of the people. I mean, you know, he took a job as a small-town mayor, and his family still had to, like, help pay his bills because he didn't make that much money. I mean, he was known for his hoodies and his baggy pants. I mean, this wasn't the... um, this wasn't the the Ivy League guy, um, you know, coming with a with a suit and tie to talk to people. Do you think that whole demeanor, that his whole appearance, helped him with rural voters, or am I am I reading too much into this? Well, I think it's an appearance and narrative, right? Uh, I mean, John Fetterman and I both probably look pretty natural and pretty comfortable in Carhartt. Uh, but it's part of, of, of telling that story of who you are, right? Just like I think you saw Reverend Warnock in Georgia outperform with rural faith voters, right? That was not a coincidence, right? It is, and our, we need to do a better job, we as Democrats, of telling that story about the work ethic of our candidates. Again, uh, I wanted to ask you, too, about Georgia, looking at the other side of the coin, um, Herschel Walker underperformed among Republicans uh, more so than forget um, Warnock than than Kemp. There were more Republicans yeah, that chose exactly to right. pull a battle ballot for Kemp than Herschel Walker. Do you have any insight into that? Well, I think part of that has to do with his closeness to Trump. Right. We saw in Georgia those Republicans willing to separate themselves and their politics from Donald Trump outperform those who 
uh, uh, struggled to, to close the gap between themselves and Trump, who chose to be Trump minions. And so that made a difference, right? There is a group of patriotic Republicans who put the country before party who are willing to say that any president who pushes people to overthrow the U.S. government is not their kind of president, is not their kind of Republican. And I think that time will tell as uh, the January 6th investigations, although obviously with the change in power structure in the House, there's going to be some change there. I think as we learn more and more about what happened, we'll see more and more of that. I have um, I'm going to ask you to speculate a little bit. And I and I know people who are data driven feel very uncomfortable with this. But, um, oh, Joan, you know me. I've never hesitated. For <laughs> OK, so Herschel Walker in the primary didn't didn't get as many Republican votes as Brian Kemp got in his race for governor. And the feeling was that, like as you said, there were Republicans, whether it was his association with Trump or the fact that he just was such a bad candidate and such a bad human being that people couldn't bring themselves to vote for him. Now, when it came time for him to go head to head with Raphael Warnock, the Senate was already lost. We already had at least a 50-50 um, vote, a split Democrats, Republicans in the Senate. So it wasn't like the whole control of the Senate rested on this race. So from some of the people I've read, the feeling was that Republicans who might have otherwise just held their nose and voted for Herschel Walker simply to give Mitch McConnell power back in the Senate. There was no reason for them to come out. There was no reason for them to vote for Herschel Walker and Raphael Warnock won. But if that hadn't been the case, if the the control of the Senate would have rested on this race, do you think that there were Republicans, whether they hated Trump, hell, whether they hated Herschel Walker, would have voted for him anyway, simply to give Republicans power? Well, that's very possible, but I don't I don't think that is entirely the case. If it is, it's, I don't think it's enough that it would have changed. It might have changed the margin. I don't think it would have changed the outcome. I'll put it that way. And part of that is our own research at the Rural Voter Institute, you know, where we have talked to voters, specifically uh, rural and small town voters in battleground Midwestern states who leading up to the election, we saw a notable shift in people saying, you know, what happened on January 6th, I can't abide that. I cannot stomach to support a candidate who supports Trump because of Trump's involvement in what happened in January 6th. Now, was that the entire uh, uh, Republican GOP uh, electorate? No. But there was a, enough of a swath there that we saw that evolution happening. But I think it's safe to say that it might have changed the margin. It would not have changed the outcome. Hmm. Interesting. Isaac Wright is a partner at the Rural Voter Institute. We have a lot to talk about about the midterms, and I'm going to force him to make predictions for us for 2023. We have a lot to talk about. We're going to get to it right after this. Facebook. Message us. Instagram. Follow us. Twitter. Tweet us. They keep me connected. Let's get social on the socials. WCPT 820. 
Think Theory Radio. Theoretical astrophysicist Dan Hooper. If there's someplace a, a light year away from now, there's nothing I can do now that can influence that place in less than a year. No matter what I do, no matter how I build my quantum machine, or no matter what I entangle or what I quantum teleport, nothing I can do here can affect that until a full year has passed, allowing light to get there at the speed of light. Think Theory Radio with Damien Perdue. Saturdays at 6 p.m. on WCPT 820. Chicago's Progressive Talk. WCPT 820, where facts matter. This is Joan Esposito. Live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. Isaac Wright is a partner at the Rural Voter Institute. We've been talking about rural voters in the midterm elections Isaac, is it still fair to say that in more rural areas than urban areas, uh, Trump is still the man? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, I think Trump is still ahead of DeSantis uh, with a significant swath of Republicans. I do think that swath runs through uh, rural and small town America, uh, although Trump's support there, like the rest of the country, seems to be eroding. Now, when you say it seems to be eroding, what do you base that on? Well, I would say that was at our own focus groups, right? In the focus groups we conducted over the last year leading up to the election, we saw more and more movement away from Trump uh, in GOP circles. And it sort of culminated uh, towards the election with the movement away, not just from Trump, but from those candidates who were supporting him. Mm hmm. How much of that had to do with the fact that at least some of the Trump endorsed candidates were pretty much demonstrably crazy? (laughs) Probably didn't hurt. Probably didn't hurt. Uh, Trump has a flair for endorsing candidates who are like minded, not just in terms of policy, but in terms of their we'll call it loosely their style of politics. You know, there was an interview, and uh, sadly, um, my befuddled brain can't remember with whom, but there was a Republican running for, I believe it was statewide office, and um, she was a MAGA, but she didn't get Donald Trump's endorsement. And when asked about that, she said, well, you know, uh, this movement is bigger than Donald Trump. Like MAGA is a is like its own thing now and doesn't really need Donald Trump to be a part of it anymore. It's it's going to continue with him or without him. What do you think about that? That's an interesting point, because if Donald Trump is not part of the, quote, MAGA movement, what becomes of that movement within the Republican Party? And I'm not sure it can sustain the same vitriol and hate and anti-U.S. government, anti-American uh, Constitution flavor that it has had thus far without him at the helm. Um, so if that is the case, if the MAGA movement within the Republican Party continues without Trump at the head, uh, can it survive? And if so, will it look demonstrably different than it does now? And I think that's a very real possibility. What percentage of the country would you describe as being as being MAGA, I've heard estimates of thirty percent. No, I think it's lower than that. I think it's lower than that, and I, again, I think it continues 
to decline by the day. Uh, more and more people realize that, quote, make America great also stands for attack America. And that is not something that folks who, in many cases, uh, you know, I, I use the example of the, the Tennessee legislature when there was the uh, MAGA uh, protest at Virginia Tech and a young woman was slaughtered uh, uh, by a I think it was vehicular manslaughter. Does that sound right? Was that the charge afterwards for the person who uh, ran over? I can't remember exactly. When that happened, there was a member of the Tennessee legislature, a Democrat, who took a bill to the floor. Because if you remember, uh, neo-Nazis were involved in that protest. Who just said, you know, it was a, a... Resolution to the floor of the Tennessee House to say we oppose Nazis in all forms, Nazism, neo-Nazis. You know, in Tennessee, we denounce Nazis. That was a young man, that young legislator, whose grandfather fought on the beaches of Normandy to defend the free world from Nazis. And the Tennessee legislature voted down the resolution. They would not condemn Nazism. I like to think it was for fear of angering Trump rather than just sheer loyalty against all American values and putting Trump above all American values. But the reality is, the reality is, I don't think that would be the case today. I certainly hope not. I think there are many patriotic Republicans who are finding more and more freedom in their party away from the whims of Trump. Except, Isaac, at the national level, we had prominent Republicans who voted against giving some of the Metropolitan and Capitol Police officers medals for January 6th. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And it's a tragedy. It's wrong. I think we have to continue to work. We are not going to change minds by not having conversations. And I think we have to continue to work to see the base of the Republican Party change if we want to see their leadership of their party change, because the leadership of their party has never exactly been known for its spine or backbone, right? Who was the last courageous Republican you can think of who really, really stood up for party before country? I mean, for me, I go back to Howard Baker, right? How many decades ago was that when Howard Baker said, what did the president know and when did he know it? 50 years now, right? Well, would you count um, Kinzinger or Cheney? Well, Liz Cheney, but, uh, you know, her own party defeated her for that. Howard Baker uh, lived on to be a strong leader in the Republican Party for years to come and helped shape its direction if memory serves, if history serves, if memory of history serves. So I, I think what we see is there is a certain uh, edifice within the Republican Party that is eating its own when they take that stand. But as the base shifts, the Republican Party will follow its base. Well, let's talk for a second. I, I don't know what kind of um, breakdown you do in each and every state, but in Wyoming, I mean, Adam Kinzinger just said, you know what, guys, I'm out of here. Liz Cheney tried to hang on to her seat and was defeated. Um, when you looked at that vote, what was who voted for Liz Cheney and who didn't? Yeah, so I 
I think we're still looking at the demographics of that, but by and large, we saw more, and I'm going to use this term loosely because it is such a broad definition, mainstream Republicans, people who were already concerned about what Donald Trump was doing in the party. And that was not enough in that election for her to save her seat. Uh, again, I think that we are seeing it change. If her election was in 2024 instead of 2022, I'm not sure that would have been the case. That said, I think the country may still benefit from her leadership as somebody who is willing to be a voice against Trump at all costs. Somebody who says, look, titles mean less to me than patriotism, and therefore I will oppose Donald Trump. And look, Liz Cheney and I probably don't agree on a lot of public policy items. I don't agree with her on anything. That's something I think we can agree on is Donald Trump is taking not just the country, but the Republican Party. And because we are a two-party system, the dynamic of the two parties matters to all of us. And so as much as she is willing to stand up and try to change that, I think that is something that we can continue to see good things from her. I mean, Joan, you and I are old enough, forgive me for saying that, but today is my mom's birthday. So I've already (laughs) talked about age a few times today. Happy birthday, (laughs) Mom, if you're listening. Um, But you and I are old enough that we remember a time when Republicans and Democrats had very different visions, very different ideas of how to get down the road to those visions. But in the end, their motivation was a better and stronger country, a better and stronger world. And it seems like that has changed. I remember decades ago when I was a young operative and the first time I left my home state politics, my going away party was thrown in part by my Republican counterpart that we had dueling quotes in the news from time to time. Because at the end of the day, we were all friends. We all wanted the same thing, which was a better state. We had different ideas of how to get there. And there is a toxicity in our politics today that has changed that. And we have to work beyond that toxicity. We cannot curse the other side without being willing to say, hey, let's have a conversation about why we believe the things we believe. We're never going to convince every Republican to reach common ground. They're never going to convince every progressive to reach common ground. And there are things that for moral issues, we should not reach common ground on Republicans, places where we are diametrically opposed. But the ability to at least be able to collaborate for the good of the country is something that we have to work towards again. But that is a bigger dynamic. It cannot be a zero-sum game. Um, and, And... There are those within our own party, within the progressive movement, who might disagree with me about this. But, you know, there are certainly a lot of conservatives that disagree with me about it. But in the end, I would rather help 85 percent of the people than know I was right and I didn't give an inch and zero percent of people be helped. Yeah. Because well, there are lives and there are lives and pieces at stake in every decision of public policy. I I agree with you. I also remember those times when, okay, there were some, you know, profound disagreements. You know, Republicans used to say, well, we want small government and deregulation and Democrats were, well, we need social programs. So there were some serious divides. But a lot of times in government previously, they both 
both sides recognized where they wanted to end up. They just said, well, I think we, you know, Republicans would say, I think we should take this road over here. And Democrats were, no, this road over here will get us there better and faster. It was like we both, both parties wanted a better, stronger um, um, America and saw oftentimes just different paths to achieve the same goal. And man, oh, man, it's like I don't see that. Uh, you know, I'm I'm hoping and praying that I see that again. And w- we need to take a break. But, Isaac, when we come back, one of the things I want to ask you about, you know, these mainstream Republicans that you and I both talk about, and they seem to be the Republicans who've spent the last few years just sort of keeping their heads down and, you know, and not making any waves. I'm wondering if if we've approached a time when they might start actually speaking out. Isaac Wright is a partner at the Rural Voter Institute. We're going to continue this conversation after a break. Podcasts of Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, are available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud. Just search WCPT 820. There's new information, explosive new information. It's how every day starts. Need for information. Get the info you need from Santita Jackson. Weekday morning starting at 6 on WCPT 820. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. And I am joined by Isaac Wright, who's a partner with the Rural Voter Institute. Isaac, you and I were just tossing around that phrase, mainstream Republicans. And I believe that they're out there. I believe that um, they're keeping their heads down. They're not making any waves. They're not standing up to anybody. And I believe some of them are still uh, being... Uh, disingenuous, uh, apparently giving lip service to MAGA beliefs when in truth that is not the way they see the world. So we are hoping that those people grow a spine and, and start making their voices heard. Supposedly this Main Street coalition in Congress has said we're not going to let the radical right push us around. Okay, you know, rhetoric, it's a great place to start. You know, hopefully there'll be some action that follows it. But are do you think you and I in this discussion are are blinded by our hope that this is going to happen? Because I still see a lot of crazy stuff going on. Well, let's define our hope, right? And if we can change one in a hundred minds in terms of the willingness to speak out, that's a huge victory. And folks who are listening right now who are Democrats, who identify as progressives, right? This is the time that Republicans have a narrow majority in the House to go to your Republican friends and say, make a phone call, call your member of Congress, ask them to do the right thing, not the Trump thing, and encourage those people to find it not in a condescending way, not in a see I told you so way, and in a this is a defining moment for our country and our future kind of way. And that's critical for where we go as a nation. Now, if you don't have Republican friends and you self-identify as a Democrat or a progressive in general, then that's a whole different discussion. Because if you're not talking to people, 
you're not changing their mind. And if we don't expand our own social circles to include people that disagree with us, then we are allowing things to take the course they take without intervening in that future. Well, I don't mind having those discussions here on the radio, Isaac, but I will tell you that in personal life, you know, if I'm at a cocktail party and somebody inappropriately brings up politics and says some things I don't agree with, oh, Isaac, I just don't want to engage. Yeah. That, well, I was I was sitting down for a cup of coffee years ago with Stacey Abrams when she was the uh, Democratic caucus leader in the state house of Georgia. And, of course, Democrats were a, a very weak minority in the chamber at that point. And so if they wanted to get things done, they had to find Republican votes for Democratic bills, which is a tough thing to do. It was a very tough thing in Georgia in that era. And I asked Stacey Abrams, you know, how, do you, how do you do it? And I will never forget Stacey's words. She said, when I sit down with a Republican lawmaker, I have to first find something we can agree on to be able to build on that, to talk about issues where we can find common ground. And, and she said, sometimes I have to go way down the list of things to find we agree on. Sometimes it is simple as I like dogs. We like dogs, and that's where we start. We both find dogs to be good pets, and that's what we build on. But even when it's gotten to that place, that that's the 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 most that is the least common denial or greatest common variable they can agree on. She said that's something that we can build on, and we have to be willing to do that. We have to be able to strike out ninety nine times out of a hundred to find that person we can make a difference. With. But that's to be able to have those conversations, even if it is to go, as you put it, the cocktail party, to get as basic as, you know, we both like dogs, to have something to build on. Now, well, me, I had, uh, I had a uh, Australian Shepherd uh, Blue Heeler Cross growing up. That was a beloved dog of mine. I'm ready to have that conversation. <laughs> well, it's so funny you say that. Well, um, I have an Australian Shepherd uh, he's uh, he's uh, came from a rescue, but um, he looks he looks reasonably purebred. Uh, so I, I know why you had great affection for that dog. Well, I was at a cocktail party under when Obama was president, and my partner and one of my girlfriends we were having a delightful conversation about nothing of any importance. And all of a sudden, her husband walked up and out of the blue just was like, well, you know that Obama, I really don't. And it was like, and the three of us just kind of stood there blinking like, like, oh, my God, what's going on? How do we get out of this? Uh, Who says what? So maybe, Isaac, what I should have said is I should have looked at him and I should have said, you know, I think your wife is great. You have such a great wife. What do you should that? Maybe that could have been the entree. I don't know. What do you think? What whatever the entree is, right? Would we find what's the ground we can agree on and build on? Yep. Um, But but Isaac, I really do believe, particularly at the state level, I think that especially in the deep red states, things are going to get worse before they get better. 
And part of what I'm basing that on is uh, some of these clips that come out of these state legislatures and the, the crazy things that people are suggesting and that Democrats who are sadly usually in the minority are trying to push back against. Real quick, I want to play some sound uh, that we posted on Heartland Signal from Missouri. Yeah. Um, there is the woman that you're about to hear is State Representative uh, Prudy, who is a Democrat, because in the Missouri State Legislature, they want to start legislating what the women can wear when they uh, come to the floor. Listen to this. I want you all to pay particular attention because there's going to be times on this floor where there are things that should not require debate and comment. I contend that these are one of these things. There are times to have your name said, to be recognized, to be called upon. This is not one of those things. There are some very serious things that are in this rule package that I think we should be debating. But instead, we are fighting, again, for women's right to choose something. And this time is whether she, how she covers herself and the interpretation of someone who has no background in fashion. Because, again, it is an, and this isn't a shot. It's inappropriate to wear sequins before five o'clock telling me that I can't wear a crispy, good St. John sweater if it has too many buttons. I spend $1,200 on a suit and I can't wear it in the people's house because someone who doesn't have the range tells me that it's inappropriate. That's not why any of us were elected, Mr. Speaker. None of us. I urge us to vote no on this. Because it's ridiculous. And also, congratulations, I'll keep that to myself, to any of us who may be with child. Um, you surely don't have enough or have the money off the salary that we make to go buy a bunch of, of new clothes or tailored clothes. And I hope that you're able to continue to wear your cardigan um, and vote on behalf of the people who sent you here. That's Rachel Prudy from uh, Missouri. And the problem with that St. John jacket that she couldn't wear it had too many buttons, Isaac. It had too many buttons. That's how specific that uh, these uh, Republican legislators, you know, they, you know, they've already told women in this legislature they can't have bare arms. That's why the, the cardigan reference, uh, because they're not allowed to wear um, like sleeveless dresses because they can't bear their arms. And now apparently we're regulating the number of buttons on the jacket or sweater. I think this craziness is going to continue for the near future. Please, Isaac, tell me you've got some data that says I'm dead wrong. Well, as a former Missouri resident, I have attended a couple of Missouri inaugural balls. And if you're familiar with how inaugurations work in Missouri, the inaugural ball in Jefferson City is in the state capitol. And every legislator opens up their office to have their own reception. And so you sort of hop from legislative office one to the next, meeting each legislator, having the cheese and cracker Ritz or the glass of wine, etc. <laughs> and I got to tell you, based on that experience, nobody should be taking fashion advice from a member of the <laughs> legislative chamber. We have already gone astray on the premise here from the get-go. Look, these are Republican conservative activists trying to create flashpoints. So they're talking about what members on the floor 
wear or don't wear when they cast ballots on behalf, when they cast votes on behalf of their constituents, when they cast votes under constitutional democracy for the people who elected them to represent them, instead of talking about what they're doing to the economy, to health care, to education. And so to a certain degree, the fact that we have to have this conversation right now, instead of what's at stake in, say, the state school system or the state economic projections or the budget, means they're already winning because they do these outlandish and gimmicky things to oppress people that they know will draw out outrage so that we are all caught in the outrage of the wrongness of what they're doing instead of looking at what's going on behind chamber doors and committee rooms with things like budgets that affect the school system, a people's ability to find work. So you're saying that something like this is offered up as a distraction, as a distraction? I think so. And it doesn't mean that we can't address it, right? This is oppressing people's basic rights of what they choose to wear. And by all means, as I said, and I think as the representative sound clip you played, there is nobody in the legislative chamber that we should be taking fashion advice from. <laughs> but at the same time, the fact that we have to have that discussion, and it's just like a, a, a magician, just like a magic show, right? We're talking about what the right hand is doing, and nobody's noticing what the left hand is. So what are they behind closed doors in the majority doing with the budget, with the economic incentives for the state, with the school system? I understand what you're saying there. That doesn't mean that we should not push back. It doesn't mean that we should not be standing up and Mm -hmm. saying how ridiculous this is. But it is a smart strategy on their part to do these outlandish things that rightfully draw a righteous ire of outrage, not just from people on the left, but I think mainstream Americans, I think the average person can say, it is ridiculous to say how many buttons you can have on your sweater when you go to work. The people of your district, the people of your neighborhoods shows you regardless of the buttons on your sweater to represent them in our constitutional democracy. And I think most people see that for what it is. But it still has to be stood up to. And while we are standing up to it, we cannot lose vigilance on what else they are doing, because I think that is the ultimate strategy there. Mm-hmm. And even the, that is the strategy, and it certainly is distracting. But when it comes time for re-election... I mean, the person who proposed this measure, don't you think they're worried about the fact that some my opponent is going to say, look how ridiculous this person is, that this they that this uh, the number of buttons on a sweater was something that they felt that the legislature should work at work toward. I mean, because, frankly, if with politicians, even those who are interested in what happens in the country, getting themselves reelected is also always issue, if not number one, right up there at the top. So isn't it a little bit self-destructive to bring these kind of nonsensical things? 
it only is if somebody is watching with a memory. And you and I have both been around legislative politics long enough to know people don't watch and hold politicians in the state legislature's feet to the fire the same way they do in a U.S. Congress or a U.S. Senate election, where people will remember, you know, this is two years out from the next legislative election at the state level. So in two years, is somebody going to remember that piece of legislation? Are they going to go to the weekly newspaper and take out a full-page ad pointing out to the ridiculousness of this? Yeah. That when our country is facing all of the problems we're facing, this is what they devoted their time to. They're there to represent us, and they think we have nothing greater to worry about in our community, in our economy, in our health care system, in our public education, than the number of buttons their colleagues wear on the floor. Who's going to be watching and remembering that and run that newspaper ad in two years to remind people? And that's the key, because my gut is that legislature, that legislature is counting on the fact nobody's going to remember two years from well, Isaac Wright and Joan Esposito are going to make sure people don't forget. There you go. There, Joan, I've always said, if they give the two of us enough hours and cups of coffee, we'll solve all the <laughs> Yes, indeed. Speaking of which, we're going to take a break. And when we come back, I want you to lay out a roadmap for 2023 and 2024. Just a, a small request of Isaac Wright, partner with the Rural Vo- Vo- Voter Institute, when we come back. Because facts matter. You're listening to WCPT 820. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. And I'm joined by Isaac Wright, a partner of the Rural Voter Institute, who is going to lay out the blueprint for 2023 and 2024 so that more rural voters can be brought over to the blue side. Isaac, what do you think? Well, I have been going through numbers on the Senate seats that are up. We have a really tough Senate map in two years. Yes. Uh, And most recently, I've been looking at uh, Ohio and Montana. And those are states where we need to be building infrastructure now. Um, we, and again, as I say, as I'm going through the map and looking at numbers, most recently, but those are places where if we chip away a couple of points, you know, again, two to three points in rural and small town votes, we win statewide elections. We can hold the U.S. Senate. And so as we look at what the margins are in each of those states, we need to be building the infrastructure now to be able to do that in 2024. And the same thing is true for the presidential election. Again, I think in Pennsylvania and Georgia, we have excellent roadmaps from our U.S. Senate candidates about how to do that. Um, a lot of it has to do with spending the time there. Now, for example, in the presidential race, that means the candidate's time. It also means the surrogate's time. Um, but it's going to be building out that time and locality and rural voters, small town voters. And I think most American voters, for that matter, can sense the difference between somebody who shows up in the last six weeks to ask for their vote versus somebody who's been there. And so having that presence on the ground before 2023 is out 
makes a huge difference. And, you know, you just said something that I think a lot of us forget. It's it's not it's it's not a question of converting every single voter. What did you say? Two to three percent? Yeah, two to three percentage points. And we know it's possible. You know, uh, my, my company was engaged in the South Dakota governor's race. Oh, gosh, what, 2018. And when we did a longitudinal study of uh, rural voter trends county by county for every county in America for all 50 states over a 10-year period. I think it was the first longitudinal rural voter uh, trend study of its kind that had been done. We found that at that time, which I think we did the study in 2019 or 2020, we found that the largest swing in rural voters uh, in state top-tier statewide elections, i.e. gubernatorial and U.S. Senate elections, was in that race where we swung 39 points amongst rural voters, red to blue. 30, wow. Not amongst the entire electorate, but imagine a 39-point swing. That's incredible. Small-town voters. So we know it's possible. We know it can be done. We're just saying a 39-point swing isn't even required. A two, a three-point swing makes the difference. And you've heard me preach this before, but you look uh, at the 2016 elections, right? And I was I was at a pro-Hillary Clinton super PAC uh, in that election. And you look at the outcome in 2016 versus 2020 in Wisconsin, right? Donald Trump carried rural and small-town voters in Wisconsin in 2016 by 26 points, and he carried Wisconsin in the White House. Joe Biden, four years later, lost to Donald Trump, rural and small-town voters, by 23 points. The difference in losing rural and small-town voters by 26 points versus by 23 points makes the difference in carrying a state and, indeed, in winning the White House. Hmm. So we're not talking about those kind of catastrophic numbers of a 39-point swing. We're talking about a two, a three-point margin difference. We're not talking about winning. We're not talking about narrowing the gap to single digits. We're talking time and again about the difference of losing by 23 points versus 26 points is the difference in a statewide outcome. And those outcomes matter to people's lives. We often get so wrapped up in the D versus R that we forget about the convictions of why we're Democrats, of why we're progressives. And it's because the policies that we're fighting for make a difference in people's lives. Look at President Biden's record of bringing manufacturing jobs back to the U.S. in microchip technology, right? That's not just going to ease up the problem on new vehicles and the readiness of supply chains on producing vehicles in the American manufacturing system, specifically in places like Michigan. But it's, a, it's about bringing high-tech industry jobs, or excuse me, high-tech manufacturing industry jobs back to the country. Those are the kind of policies that make a difference. That's the difference in somebody's decades-long future as a taxpayer or a tax burden, right? Those mm-hmm. are the differences that change the trajectory where people have the opportunity to break generational poverty because of a good-paying job with good benefits. 
Those are the things we believe in. That's what we're fighting for. And that's why these elections matter. That's why those two to three points matter. And would you say that it's the one-on-one actually getting boots on the ground, going to where people are and having these conversations? Is that more effective than the big presidential address? You know, I have read a lot of the case studies and the papers written about this concept of deep canvassing, which is the idea of having somebody who goes and instead of just knocking on a door and handing somebody a flyer and saying, remember the vote, this is why the vote for the person I support and walking mm-hmm. away. But the idea of going and having repeated and long-term conversations with a, a, a single point of contact, right? And in the end, the best way I can wrap up all of those uh, papers and case studies about the difference of that concept of deep canvassing is Stacey Abrams' words. We have to find something we can agree on to build on. And sometimes it's as basic as the fact we both like dogs. But that's <laughs> what we find we agree on, and then we take our conversations from there, right? In the end, that's what all of the millions of dollars in politics spent to see if deep canvassing works and if it makes a difference. That's what it comes down to, is one American voter saying to another, I like dogs. Do you like dogs? Let's hold on that. Yeah. Really that simple. I'm not trying to be reductionist, but that's what it comes down to. No, it makes perfect sense. Are we going to be the people who have those conversations? And I am tempted. You know, I was just in the beltway for meetings, what, a week ago? And I'm tempted to be in that pontificator group that we just sit there and decry all the problems and say, I just don't understand why the way they do. But in the end, I have friends who vote that way. I'm intentional and deliberate. I don't want everybody in my circle of friends to agree with me. Because it means I'm not growing and I'm sure as hell not changing anybody's mind. And that's where we have to engage at a personal level. And we have to make a decision because you and I can sit here on the radio and we can solve all the world's problems. But if we don't bring other people in to recognize the problems and be part of the solution, we're not going to change anything. And that's where everybody listening, where both of us, we all have a personal responsibility and a stake in where we go from here. I agree with you, Isaac, and I think... The conversations with people who don't exactly see the world the way we do are some of the most important. So next time I have some either very conservative Democrats or, God forbid, even a Republican on this radio station, and I get grief for him, I'm going to say, talk to Isaac. Talk to Isaac. He will explain why this is important. Isaac, thank you so much for spending your hour with us. Okay, sounds good. It's always a pleasure. Thank you. My pleasure. Isaac Wright, partner, Rural Voter Institute. We're going to take a break for news and be back with more after this. Can't listen to Joan Esposito? Surely you can't be serious. Live, local, and progressive in your car today? I am serious, and don't call me sure. Don't fret. You can still listen to her on the TuneIn app on both your phone and computer. Whoa! You feel that right away. Uh, It's just refreshing. Remember when you get to work to hop over to WCPT820.com or the TuneIn Radio app and stream The Stephanie Miller Show weekdays 8 to 11 a.m. on Chicago's Progressive Talk, where facts matter. 
This hour of Joan Esposito Live Local and Progressive is brought to you by Team Hochberg. If you want to buy a house or refinance a house, call 855-56-DAVID or visit 56david.com. Progressive Commercial Insurance can protect your small business with over 30 coverage options, an easy-to-use mobile app, personalized discounts, and more. Get a quote in as little as six minutes at ProgressiveCommercial.com. Discounts and coverage selections not available in all states or situations. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. There is other stuff going on today that um, I want to have a chance to share some of it with you. When President Biden was uh, speaking earlier today, I told you he talked about the good economic news in case you haven't uh, heard it yet. Inflation continues to slow. The consumer price index continues to drop uh, 6.5% in December, 7.1% the previous month. Gas prices have dropped. Airline prices have dropped. It is uh, great news for the economy. President Biden talked about that earlier today. But President Biden at that press conference was also asked about a couple of other things. First of all, you may have heard of the first lady uh, had um, some skin cancers removed. She had three spots on her face. Uh, at the time I heard the news yesterday, two of the three were confirmed to be uh, sort of the slowest growing kind of skin cancer that is easily removed and gotten rid of the, the word on the third uh, portion of skin that had been removed. They hadn't gotten the results on that one yet. Um, but today, when President Biden uh, went out in front of the press to talk about the good economic news, he was also asked about his wife. He was asked to give the reporters an update on her recovery. This is what he had to say about that. She's doing really well. She uh, um, she was under a long time uh, for five hours because what they were doing is they take out, would do the most, meaning remove what they thought might be cancerous. And they'd have to then go back and test it and see what it was. But she's doing really well. She's up. We had uh, we had breakfast this morning. She's uh, she's recovering. Um, and she's going to be sore for a while because of the work they did on her eyes. And, uh, but uh, you know, that's where one, one of these... Uh, these were, but she is a zero, zero to one percent chance of ever return of any cancer. And so thank God she is doing really well. That surgery, he mentioned the Mohs surgery. If anybody in your life has ever had a skin cancer removed, especially from your face, you know what that's about. And here's the reason why you might think, well, she just had three little spots. Why did it take five hours? Well, let me tell you why it takes five hours. Because the surgeon tries to be really conservative. They, the surgeon takes what is obviously uh, cells that have gone awry. They take that off and then they test the edges or what doctors call the margins. And they test those edges to see if the edges are cancer free. And if the edges still show cancer cells, then they go back to the patient and they take a little bit more off. And then they send that to be tested to see if what they've taken off now has 
if the edges of that sample are cancer-free. Because they are trying, it's a face, you know, and you're trying to take off the smallest amount. You don't want to go wide and you don't want to go deep if you can avoid it. So they take the cancer off sort of bit by bit, and then they test it, and then they go back, and then they test it, and they keep doing that with each lesion until they come back with clean borders, clean margins, clean edges. They now have taken a sample of tissue, and all of the tissue in that sample that was in contact with the rest of the body shows no sign of cancer. It is, you know, it's not like having an organ removed. You might say, oh, my God, she was under for uh, for five hours. You know, that's um, that's bad news. But what it means is they just approach it cautiously. They approach it carefully, bit by bit, and they keep going until it is um, until they get the cancer free margins. So good news for that, right? Um, we are going to take a break. When we come back, we are going to talk local politics with a state senator right after this. Stay on top of the latest news in and around Chicago with Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Every weekday afternoon from 2 to 5 p.m. on WCPT 820. WCPT 820, Chicago's progressive talk, where facts matter. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. We are going to be talking with State Senator Robert Peters, and it's so interesting. He represents Illinois' 13th District. It's such a perfect day to talk to him because we started this day talking to Matt Gugala from Smart Local 265, you know, talking about unions and workers and workers having a right to unionize for better pay and better working conditions. Well, Senator Peters is currently uh, leading the fight on a measure that would allow principals and assistant principals in the city of Chicago to collectively bargain. Uh, Senator Peters, thank you so much for being here. Definitely. Thank you so much, Joan. Joan. It's a pleasure to talk with you. So tell me how this bill that you are uh, pushing, uh, how did this come about? Yeah, so, you know, I first I'm a firm believer in uh, unionization, collective bargaining, uh, strengthening labor rights. And that's always been sort of something for me that's been front and center. Um, But also, you know, the Principals Association reached out to me and they said they've had this long held fight. Uh, to unionize in in Chicago, um, that, you know, they're kind of been stuck in a position of being uh, a form of middle management where they don't really get to dictate the policy of the school board um, and they don't necessarily get the rights uh, of many labor unions when it comes to education. And so this was their push. And, of course, when I heard that and I talked to principals in my community, I said, yes, I'll sign on, let's move this bill and let's make this happen. Excellent. And um, where does it stand right now? So we, we, we passed it in the House. We've passed it in the Senate. You know, now the next step is getting that signature from the governor. Uh, and my hope is, considering the fact that the governor has been one of the 
leading governors in this state's history when it comes to labor rights, uh, and particularly in this country when it comes to labor rights, uh, that we can get that signature and finally start that process so that uh, Chicago's principals and assistant principals can, uh, can unionize. Now, just to be clear, this doesn't mean that the principals and the assistant principals would be part of the Chicago Teachers Union. No, no. I think that this would be uh, for them to be on their own separate union themselves, you know, particularly something that's centered around uh, the principals and the principals uh, and the assistant principals. So I think it's it's really for them to have their own uh, bargaining unit uh, to work from. Uh, you know, that's not to say that there are different unions with, you know, in terms of with different members. But I think that for their intention, uh, I think this is really about Chicago principals and the Chicago Principals Association uh, forming their own sort of collective voice. When you've talked to principals and assistant principals about this, like what are some of the things that these folks have said to you? I mean, they don't like, they don't feel there's a lot of equity in terms of the hiring process, right? In terms of the diversity of who's hired in the, uh, as a principal and assistant principal. Uh, they don't like that there's some discrepancies when it comes to pay, you know, particularly on, you know, if you are a black principal, do you get paid less than say a white principal? That, that's something that should have more equity to it. Uh, and I think those are sort of the two things that really sort of stand out is the hiring process and, and the pay and benefit process and really the sort of how that is equitably distributed uh, amongst members of the association. I would imagine that this would be the kind of bill that Governor Pritzker would delight in signing. Do you have any idea when that might happen? I don't have any idea, but what I can say is uh, with any bill I carry, uh, sooner better than later, right? (laughs) Any bill I carry, you know, I I would love it to be as soon as possible. And, um, you know, I I think it's just a landmark achievement for the state. I think it's just another sort of accomplishment, a labor union-friendly accomplishment uh, for our state and our legislator and our governor. Is this the sort of measure that uh, will take effect immediately, or is there a delayed start date? I'd have to double-check. I don't want to give the wrong answer. I believe it's an effective, uh, immediate effective date, but uh, I don't want to necessarily speak out of pocket on that. Um, I think the thing that I care most about was that it, it, it gets done and it gets moving. Um, and don't forget, there's still a lot of work that needs to happen, I'm sure, organizing members so that you can actually start building that union and growing that union. Mm-hmm. Um, there's another measure that you've been working on that I wanted to talk to you, and it's, it has to do with making, uh, giving people the ability to legally change their names. Talk about that one. Yeah, I mean, so... This is one that I'm really passionate about, and, you know, it was a bill that I, you know, I ended up having, um, working with uh, Bill Cunningham. I was the original sponsor, uh, but I asked him to help move it, uh, and he carried it forward because he had a really personal story about his time when he worked in the, the jail, and he had uh, women who were survivors of domestic violence, uh, survivors of sex trafficking, who couldn't participate in a program at Cook County Jail uh, because they were worried their name uh, would be something that would be outed and someone could try to find them or track them down and hurt them and their family. And so it was something that was, you know, particularly personal and, and sort of salient to uh, Senator Cunningham's story. But I was the original sponsor, and, uh, you know, I really wanted to just first say, like, 
the trans organization, uh, the trans advocates who came to me with these, with this story, but the pain that they have and the struggles they have to be able to buy a house or uh, to be able to live their life without having to be dead names really sort of moved me at my core because you should be able to live the life of who you are and live that authentically. And we had a system that said, look, if you had a felony on your, you know, you had a felony, you were not allowed to change your name for a decade. It didn't matter what type of felony, didn't, you know, it, it, it was literally saying anybody with any felony could not change their name. Sometimes people had those, you know, had a felony maybe because they were involved with sex work or uh, they engaged in the shadow economy. Uh, and then they were cursed and stuck with a name that is not theirs, a dead name. And it prevents them from moving on in their life or living their life and being their authentic self. And so that, that this bill would say it changes the law. And it says that even if you, if you have a felony, you can change your name, legally change your name, to be able to participate in the world as you authentically are. And if you're on any sort of registries or you're on, uh, you know, if there's any legal paperwork, that that information will still stay with the state. So it doesn't mean that someone, uh, you know, changes their name and then they just disappear because most of the people want to change their name. Uh, it's not that they want to disappear. They want to be able to just buy themselves a home and live their life. Um, mm -hmm. And so this is a, this will be, you know, a hugely transformative experience for a lot, a lot of people uh, who've had to struggle with um, having to be called a name uh, that they, that is not who they are um, and not part of their uh, current existence. Um, and then on top of that, if you're a survivor of domestic violence, uh, you're a survivor of uh, sexual assault or uh, human trafficking, um, you want to be able to change your name uh, because you don't want that person who is very violent against you or your loved ones to be able to track you down. And you may have a felony. You know, there are cases of people who experience extremely painful domestic violence and assault who ended up killing, you know, that, their abuser and then getting stuck with a felony, uh, and or they ended up, you know, deciding to get payback, you know, fight back against their abuser and get a felony. You don't want to have that name stuck with you so someone can then try to track you down. And so that gives them an opportunity uh, to escape uh, an identity that prevents them from living the, the free life that they deserve. You know, it's interesting. I understood the argument with making it easier for trans people to change their names. And, and I like the fact that you're using the terminology, they want to get rid of their dead name. I mean, very famously, a lot of people on Substack follow Charlotte Clymer. And, you know, she's a woman. It would be a lot different if she still had to carry around her birth name. I mean, uh, Cher's son, Chaz Bono, I mean, no longer goes by chastity bono, just uh, they were born female and have been male for many years now. And it's uh, the, they, that is the terminology, because when somebody changes uh, to the sexuality that they feel reflects who they really are, to be able to be able to have a name that reflects who they really are is so much a part of creating 
of that kind of honest identity that they've been looking for. But the one part of this that I hadn't thought about was exactly what you talked about. You know, people who want to provide themselves maybe a name change to give them an extra layer of protection against a violent partner who might, you know, who might come after them. And and let's face it, that kind of um, thing happens all the time. How many times do we hear about, you know, somebody being killed by a partner right after like an, a restraining order expired or an order of protection expired or how somebody followed them to their place of work? You know, I mean, this isn't yeah. this isn't a hypothetical here. It happens all the time. And our job in the legislature is to think about safety in as broad of a manner without being reactionary, without being small, uh, without being narrow. And to me, there's a variety of different ways that we can look at this in terms of safety. There's a safety of being a survivor of violence and assault uh, or human trafficking. There's also the fact that when someone is trans, their very existence in this current world is under threat. There is, we know of countless stories in which people have experienced abuse or been murdered because someone has violently reacted against them for being who they authentically are. And so there is a layer of threat every time your dead name is brought up uh, in any setting. And so giving the person the opportunity to live themselves authentically is also giving someone an opportunity to live a safer life. And we should not ever condone. I mean, and this is what gets me. There are people who do not necessarily agree on, you know, on trans rights issues. But you should always say that it's about protecting people no matter what. And instead of buying into the hysterias of the awake Illinois who are dangerously nutty, we should make sure that we're giving people, even if they have a history of being a a felony, a chance to live their authentic life. And we can make sure that whether that person is trans or not, trans or cis, that if they are a felon, that that is properly accounted for in whatever paperwork necessary. That is fine. Just let people be who they are. State Senator Robert Peters, what else are you working on? You know, I, I you know, we just got inaugurated in. Uh, we we just passed a couple pieces of historic legislation. Uh, we passed a assault weapons ban, and uh, we passed in a, a reproductive health bill that includes a lot of you know gender uh, affirming language and protections in there. Um, I am just excited to be in the 103rd and forever grateful to the constituents uh, who, you know, voted in me in and said they want me to represent this. And, uh, you know, my idea, as I say, there are times where, uh, you know, half the district may love what I'm doing, half the district may not (laughs) like what I'm doing. But at the end of the day, you know, my job is to fight for the entire district. And uh, in the 103rd, that's my that's my plan here. Uh, And I'll just add a little quip. You know, I've I've come on your show multiple times to talk about public safety issues and the Safety Act and the Pretrial Fairness Act. And I want to I want to note something that's happened this week. A bunch of sheriffs 
across the state of Illinois have said that they will not follow the law that we passed on the assault weapons ban. That they are going to break our law because these sheriffs have decided to say that they are the arbiters of the Constitution. Now, what gets me here is these are the same people who most likely support, you know, using the purge language. These are the same people who say they're law and order. These are the same people who support lawsuits to go after the pretrial fairness act. And today, without even like a shred of, of, of self-awareness, they have said that they are not going to abide by the law of the land of Illinois, the law of the land of Lincoln, and our assault weapons ban. And I hope that this is a reminder to people that if you are black in Cook County or in the northern burbs and you own a gun, you are always going to face the tough odd crime law. But if you are white in some of these counties, your sheriff saying it's okay for you to break the law. And that type of double standard. And it's not about whether I agree or disagree on whatever gun legislation's out there. It's about the double standard that we have in this state on public safety. And a reminder that these people don't care about keeping us safe or protecting us. They care about playing boogeyman politics and trying to take us back to 1955, you know, deep in the heart of segregation and Jim Crow. And I, I hope that these people understand that they're putting us all at threat because they decided to become the arbiters of what is constitutionally accepted, supposedly. And that is that tells us about the contradiction of how we practice public safety in the state. And I hope it's a constant reminder that we need to reimagine our public safety policies uh, and not fall for their, uh, you know, the okie doke that they present. State Senator Robert Peters um, doing uh, great work in the Illinois General Assembly. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for the bills that you are championing. Um, we we support you 100 percent. And thanks for taking time to talk to us. Definitely. Thank you so much. And I'll talk to you soon. Yes. We are going to take a break and we are going to be back with more right after this. Podcasts of Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, are available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud. Just search WCPT 820. Tune into the Tom Hartman Radio Program, your home for news, opinion, and insight, right here on WCPT 820, where facts matter. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. We are joined by one of our favorite people to talk to on the radio, the lovely and talented Tony Fitzpatrick. And he reached out today to me uh, because, as you know, he owns and has a gallery, uh, The Dime Chicago on Western Avenue, and what he does now that he is, of course, wildly famous, internationally famous as an artist and an actor. By the way, I saw that I saw that Instagram post of you and uh, Terry. Is it O'Quinn or Quinn? Terry O'Quinn, yeah. O'Quinn, yeah. He's a handsome devil, Tony. Woo, you have to bring him on the yeah, radio you know, soon. My wife said the same thing. Wow, yowza. <laughs> Michelle said the same thing. He's uh 
He was my uh, castmate in Patriot, and he happened to be in Chicago yesterday. He's got meetings all day, um, or else I would have dragged him into this. And uh, <laughs> we, you know, the, the whole cast of Patriot, we're still pretty much like a family. We still stay in touch. Um, we're still hoping at some point that, uh, you know, if they can bring the Gilmore girls back, they can certainly bring <laughs> us back. So. Um, yeah, that's a- you know all of us. All of us share that feeling that we're not done yet. You know that mm-hmm. uh, maybe uh, maybe there's a, uh, a maybe an ending awaits this story. So, well, for those of you who haven't had a chance to see it, uh, the Patriot is on Amazon, Amazon Prime, and it is it's. It's, um, you know, any way, any way I try to describe it isn't going to be completely accurate. It's kind yeah. of a spy show. It's kind of, there's kind of a, it's kind of a comedy. It's kind of a drama. It's kind of, kind of mystical and philosophical. It's just a darn good time. And Tony is wonderful for playing. I won't give anything away. Let's let me just say that you will find Tony's character really interesting and engaging. But today we are talking to Mr. Fitzpatrick, not in his capacity as a famous actor, um, but in his capacity as a famous artist who has said on this show repeatedly that it's time for him to use what he has, the fame and the acclaim that he has garnered, and to use his voice and his power in the art world to try to elevate up-and-coming artists. And uh, both, you know, Tony and I have talked about this. Go ahead. To that end, uh, we have a marvelous show opening uh, tomorrow night um, at 1513 Northwestern Avenue. Um I met my friend Hannah Chavez just just a few months ago, and I, I, I was looking through her sketchbook, and there were these astonishing renderings of, of trees that reminded me uh, of nothing so much as, uh, as, as of Japanese haiku, um, of the, 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 the poetry that was written, that was rooted in nature by the Japanese centuries ago. And in and at the same token, but like the poems of uh, Mary Oliver, I mean, there's there's one line that strikes me and it hangs on this show in, in an exquisite way. That's uh, when I lived under black oaks, I felt that was made of leaves. Um, uh, I saw Hannah's work, and I kept asking her to see more uh, drawings. And sure enough, you know, by the time. We'd, we'd had a, uh, enough of a dialogue. She put together a, a magnificent show, and they're, they're, it makes it sound simple that they're drawn with a you know with a brush and with with ink, but uh, they're exquisitely complicated and as complicated as as, as nature itself is. And uh, so, I'm thrilled to, to have. Uh, the debut, the first uh, one-person show ever by Hannah Chavez. And uh, Hannah is actually part of our conversation right now, standing by, letting us two blowhards, um, you know, get all of our wind out before she joins in. Hannah, thank you so much for being here. 
Thank you so much for having me. It's a real pleasure. I've I just seen want to thank just you a- and Tony for uh, for uh, elevating me in this way. I really appreciate it. Well, I've seen a little bit, a smidgen of your work, and it is it is really striking and. It is, I, I agree, Tony, it's hard to describe it on the radio. The, the, you, it sounds so simple, but the power that is, that is in part of these drawings. Uh, Hannah, I wanted to talk to you though. You know, what is it, Tony, you always said something like, um, you know, like the people who make it in the art world are white men and dead women because women have a tendency not to be recognized for their art until they Absolutely. pass away. Oh, this artist just passed away at 89, but man, did she have a great body of work. Um, you yeah, have the, not. The problem, is, the problem is, is that art history for the longest time until, you know, the last 50 years was primarily written by men. Um and, you know, you know, when we look at the history of surrealism, now we're beginning to reassess that because we realize that Lenora Carrington and um, Dorothea Tanning, um, Gertrude Abercrombie, Merritt Oppenheim, uh, Finor uh, uh, Lini, uh, Remedios Varro, Frida Kahlo, you know, at least half of the history of surrealism was certainly uh, perpetrated by women, you know, and and beautifully, and uh, and and I think that that it's time for there to be some kind of ecumenical sense in that uh, everybody gets looked at. You know, it's time for guys who look like me to get out of the way. <laughs> well, Hannah, I've, I mean, obviously, most of the people I know who do art do it because it just sort of erupts out of them. It's not something that they're like, sit down one day and go, oh, I think I'll be an artist. Let me teach myself how to do this. But you have not chosen an easy path. Do you think about that at all, about how hard it is for a woman to make inroads in this world? Yeah, definitely. And I see it a lot in myself and the way that I even approach this show. You know, I... Being a woman or anybody uh, growing up as uh, femme, you know, is discouraged from being loud, from being outspoken, and from showing themselves authentically. And so, you know, as much as I've tried to dismantle that in myself and try and um, say what I'm making matters, you know, it doesn't look like what... Mr. So-and-so on the art market right now is making, like, it's authentic to me. It's authentic to what I have to say. Or, and I am still, like, struggling with kind of accepting that this is okay and this is a place where um, I belong, you know. And that's, um, you know, so much of the patriarchal structure with which I was raised in and how much, so much we were all raised in. And, um, you know, I've worked with uh, young girls in musical camps and it's like just giving them that space and giving them that power to um, open up and express themselves. Like they will just go from shy, timid uh, girls to just like these out outrageous, loud <laughs> young women, you know, in like the span of a week. So, yeah, it's it's a sad reality, but like, 
things like this, you know, just for myself, it's, it's opened up a huge door for me, um, in calling myself an artist and, um, tell us about your background, you know, where you grew up and, and what you were interested in. Um, so I grew up in Portland, Oregon, so I spent a lot of time just kind of wandering around the woods and, um, just the fantasy of it all and, um, like building (laughs) fairy (laughs) houses and, um, but it was also Portland, Oregon, you know, there's a lot of art and a lot of music and so creativity was, um, very, just much part of the fabric of the culture. Everybody was doing something. All of my friends were um, making stencils or playing in bands. And um, it was just kind of natural that, like, uh, you know, everybody kind of collaborated in some sort of way. My dad taught me how to draw from a really young age and um, just kind of really encouraged that. He and my mother were very, um, my dad was a traveling <laughs> photographer for many years and our basement was just full of his photographs. And, uh, my mom, although she doesn't have any, um, you know, artistic, <laughs> uh, creative pursuits, she, um, was very encouraging of it all. Um, so did you come to Chicago to get away from the rain in Portland? <laughs> um, I love the rain. <laughs> really? I spent yeah. a weekend in Portland, and I spent the entire weekend looking like a wet dog. Um, it was uh, it was memorable. Yeah. I, I used to love getting rained on as a kid. I was just thinking about this the other day where it, I wanted my hair to be just stuck to my forehead. <laughs> but rain. So I don't know. There was some like connection with it that I really enjoyed. Um, well, maybe you had a little closer relationship to nature than I've ever had or ever wanted. On on that uh, esoteric note, we need to take a quick break. Hannah Chavez and Tony Fitzpatrick and I will be right back after this. Need a new social media account to follow for progressive politics? WCPT 820 is your best source for both progressive politics and programming. Give us a like on Facebook and a follow on both Twitter and Instagram. This is WCPT 820, where facts matter. Don't turn that dial. A dangerous mistake to make. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, returns right now on WCPT 820. I'm talking with Hannah Chavez and Tony Fitzpatrick. Tony, as of course uh, all of you know in Radioland, is a big tuna in the art world. And as we old old farts should be doing, he has decided to use some of his power to help people who are kind of getting a start. And that would be Hannah Chavez, who's going to have her first solo show at Tony's Gallery, the Dime Chicago. It opens tomorrow, right? Five to eight? Yeah, tomorrow night. It opens at uh, from five to eight. And we usually go a little longer than eight. You know, people uh, get there a little later. Um, 
Yeah, I'm. I'm yeah, I, I went and looked through the show this morning, and I kept thinking to myself, "This is why I opened this gallery. This is precisely the kind of show uh, that I always dreamed of having." Um, how, how did you guys so meet? We met, um, I, as you know, I recently um, stopped drinking uh, again, and. Um, uh, as part of the recovery uh, process, um, Hannah was one of the folks who kind of uh, helped me out. And, and um, you know, we got to talking, both realized we were artists. And uh, I think that, uh, that you know, art can be also incredibly uh, helpful when you're, you're trying to find your better self. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. That, that's what's going on. Um, Hannah, uh, it, how do you feel? Do you have a? Are you nervous about uh, the opening tomorrow? Um, no. <laughs> well, I good. I, I I I feel a lot of gratitude, and um, I think just mainly gratitude uh, for Tony and this opportunity. Um, you know, I I started drawing these trees in a pretty um, unfortunate time. My brother was diagnosed with uh, stage four colon cancer, and this was kind of my therapy during that time to kind of touch on what Tony said about art being a way to get through things. And so it's I'm really grateful that I get to show my brother that like this thing (laughs) like (laughs) even though like this horrible thing is happening to him like I'm dedicating it to him you know and and like the 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 pain and the stillness and like on standby is all just um about waiting uh, to know what what to do next What's going to happen? Is that what is, is it? So the the title of the show is on standby, and is that a direct reference to your brother's situation? Yes, yes. Um, all of the titles to all the pieces are. Um, I started looking at these trees, and a lot of them. It's, this all came in hindsight after drawing in numerous trees. I I started recognizing like the way that trees kind of start to die is the way that like cancer kind of eats at the human body and um, you know takes over from the inside out. And so with that in mind, I was kind of doing this. Um, in a sort of way to pay homage to what, um, this, like how to the struggle my brother is going through and, um, like how beautiful he is and the actions that he's doing are in terms, despite these things. Um, and, uh, how there can be a lot of grace and a lot of, um, strength in these hardships as well. So that's was what I'm there, to convey with this show. 
Was there any guidance or advice that Tony gave you that was particularly worthwhile? And I know Tony, so it's okay if you say no. (laughs) Um, He just told me to keep going. I think that was the biggest thing is I was really unsure about it. And um, just to have his encouragement um, to continue with the drawings and giving the direction like um, and an end goal. I don't know. I think that that was big for me in a time where like I felt kind of lost. Well, it is. Go ahead, Tony. One of the things I wanted to make sure I did is just stay out of Hannah's way. I mean, they were the first <laughs> one I saw marvelous, and they only got better from there. And I thought, well, you know, make sure that uh, Hannah knows that these should be a show, number one, and that uh, number two, don't inject a lot of your own ideas on it. I mean, she's, you know, the, the pieces, they seem to be, I don't want to say stand-ins for like people, but I think they are stand-ins for a human condition, and uh, I think that uh, that's a remarkable thing. It absolutely uh, is a remarkable thing. I, I personally prefer art that has some emotional resonance, and I guess maybe there are some you know real modern pieces that resonate with certain folks, but. Um, Hannah's Hannah's pieces, just like your pieces, Tony. They that you they're not just incredibly visual, but they they make you they make you feel something. And I think I think that's particularly hard to do, and really is the hallmark of somebody who is terrifically talented. And Hannah, I have to say, uh, you know, I think uh, Tony's right. I mean. You're um, you're amazingly talented, and I'm sorry about your brother, but I'm glad for the inspiration that led you to create this kind of art. Um, what's next for you, Hannah? We I know this show hasn't even opened, and I'm already trying to push you down the road. Sorry about that, but it's what I do. Uh, yeah, there's another show in April. Uh, Tony has all the details for that one. <laughs> yeah. Well, my my next show is opening up at uh, uh, Povos Gallery on Chicago Avenue in April. And one of the things, one of the deals I made with dealers is that when I have a show, I'm going to make it a condition of the show that I get to bring along three or four young artists with me. And, uh, and, you know, hopefully, you know, shine a light on them as well. Um, I'm going to have my first uh, big exhibition of the lunch drawings uh, in April at Povos. And um, I, I thought, you know, uh, I'd like to have uh, Hannah Chavez, Owen Spryzak, uh, Sierra Severson, and a young man uh, named Massage uh, Washington. Um, and, again, it's, it, it's, it's an effort to make uh, at least the, the – celebrations of, you know, my shows be not all about me and, and, and be participated in by people who don't look like me, mm-hmm. you know, spread, make, make it, add as many cultural additives and as many different voices as humanly possible. Exactly. 
Exactly. To and it's it's you know not everybody who acquires the kind of power you have in that world uses it that way. Uh, and I I'm so happy that that is something you have chosen to do, and um, and wish it could could happen maybe a little little more often. And uh, thank I want to thank you both guys for being here again. I want to tell the audience that this show opens tomorrow 5 p.m. At the Dime, that's Tony's Gallery, 1513 Northwestern Avenue. It's, um, you kind of go in the side and you go up the stairs, but don't worry, there'll be signs. You'll, you'll be able to figure it out. And you'll have a chance to meet Hannah and say hello to Tony and, um, maybe, uh, pick up some, some beautiful, beautiful drawings at the same time. Uh, Tony, thanks so much for reaching out about Hannah. And it was a great conversation. And you know what? You can just keep Terry O'Quinn to yourself because he's too pretty to be a real boy. I don't think I even, <laughs> uh, I don't think I could stand to meet him. So you just hide him away for next oh, time. Oh, you will. Believe me, you will be <laughs> uh, you Thank will you be both him. for being here. Uh, that's going to do it for my show today. Uh, Driving at Home with Patty Vasquez is next. Of course, tomorrow morning, Santita Jackson is going to kick things off for us. By the way, you know, this mayoral form that we're doing on the 26th, we'd love to know what questions you would like us to ask. So email question at WCPTA20.com. You can go to my Twitter account. I pinned a tweet with the email on it. Uh, and let us know. Let us know what you want to hear from the candidates Thursday, November, or January 26th at noon. I will see you tomorrow at 2 o'clock. We'll have some fun then. Thanks for joining me. Have a safe evening. Good night. <laughs>